There was only one life between that madman and the president. Political commentator Mark Hanna said that in 1900, when Vice President-elect Teddy Roosevelt was nominated, accepted, and won his candidacy. But little did Hanna know that only a few short months later, that particular madman would ascend into the most powerful leadership position of the free world when McKinley was assassinated at the World's Fair in Buffalo. But before he became the trust-busting president that we all know and love, Roosevelt had a pretty interesting past, sure. We've all heard the stories of his rough riding days, even his life as a cattle rancher in the Dakota territories. But for two years, between 1895 and 1897, Roosevelt held the position of police chief commissioner in New York City. And that was my inspiration behind today's podcast. So today we're going to take you on some of the places that you can stroll, visit, or even sip a white wine, as Roosevelt did, across New York. And spoiler alert, we'll even give you a locale in New Jersey to visit if you're still feeling like you need a little more TR in your life. You're listening to Heirloom Historical. I'm your host, Leslie Scherenbeck, and this is Teddy Roosevelt's Manhattan. President's Day is only a few short weeks away, and it was the inspiration for this episode because if you know me, you know, Teddy Roosevelt is perhaps my favorite president in American history. Um, I just love the guy. From his rough upbringing in childhood to the tragedy that he faces as a young man with his wife and mother dying um, to his failed cattle ranching career in the Dakota territories, all the way up to his ascendancy into the presidency, being a father of six children. Um, I just think that he is such an extraordinary man. It really kind of gave me the inspiration and of course me dragging my husband throughout New York City to show him all of these Teddy Roosevelt spots that maybe you, dear listeners, would be able to appreciate them as much as I do. My husband, I don't know, not so much. To get you started, so Roosevelt comes from old money. And he was our only president born in Manhattan. His grandfather, Cornelius Van Schack Rosenvelt, was wealthy because he was an old Knickerbocker, and he made his money in New York from the plate glass importing business. He moves his family uptown to Union Square, where he builds a mansion on Broadway on a property which was between 13th and 14th Street. Now we're going to come back to Granddaddy Roosevelt's property later, but each of Cornelius's five sons were gifted houses when they got married. Two of the youngest, that would be Theodore Sr. and his wife, Mitty, real name Martha Bullock, and Theodore's brother, Robert, and his wife, Lizzie Ellis, were purchased houses on East 20th Street, which you can still see to this very day. Uh, And that's the first stop that we're going to take you is the birthplace of Theodore Roosevelt. These buildings were indicative of the romantic movement of the 1800s. They are beautiful, restored brownstone townhouses right in the heart of East 20th Street. The architecture on these buildings, as you go up and you take a look at it, it was supposed to copy nature, hence brownstones. They were supposed to be warm and easy to carve. And Teddy grew up in this building, which is now owned by the National Park Service, and you can visit it to learn all about Teddy Roosevelt's life in New York City. He grew up 
until about 1873, when he was um, just a tween. And then Teddy Sr. moved the family to a more uptown location, as East 20th Street was getting to be a little too crowded for uh, Teddy Sr.'s liking. But when you're visiting this original brownstone, there are just a few things to keep in mind. They're really kind of an interesting piece of the Roosevelt puzzle. This original building that Teddy was born in was actually demolished in 1916. Teddy dies in 1919, and there is an organization put forth known as the Women's Roosevelt Memorial Association. And they are going to buy his former home and also his uncle Robert's home since they were side by side next to each other. They begin to restore them back to the days of 1865, when a young six-year-old Teddy would have been living in the house. Now, the restoration was done with the help of Teddy's two sisters and his wife, uh, his second wife, Edith. Prior to its demolishment in 1916, Teddy's original home had some reconstruction efforts done to it. So it was actually turned into retail shops. But the Women's Roosevelt Memorial Association, when they buy the former home and his uncle's home side by side, they decide that they're going to go back to the original home layout. So as you walk through and you get your tour, you'll see that it showcases a long, narrow hall, a parlor in the front to receive guests, the dining room located at the rear, the bedrooms were located upstairs, and the kitchens and servant quarters were found in the ground floor basement. Some of my favorite pieces in the Roosevelt home, if you go and take a visit, are the restored chandelier. So Teddy takes a small crystal that falls from that chandelier onto the floor, and he snuck it away into his bedroom uh, and used it to create prisms and rainbows on his walls. He was going to be a naturalist before he went into law. Uh, And another great thing to take a look at is his father's homemade gym for the young TR, who suffered tremendously from childhood asthma. And so Teddy Sr. actually built him kind of like this little calisthenics area where there's a jump rope, there's boxing equipment, uh, there's Russian kettlebells. They were all the rage back in the 1900s. That is not a modern a modern exercise, if you will. But it, it really just shows you that Teddy overcame everything in the home, pushed by his father, Theodore Sr., that told Teddy that he had to focus on morals, health, and studies. Now, this building, if you want to go and tour it, was open to the public in 1923. It was known then as the Roosevelt House, and then it was given to the National Park Service in the 1960s. Now, the cool side story that I don't know if they tell you this when you take a tour of the home, so I'm going to tell you it here on Heirloom Historical, is that the woman, yes, woman, that was hired to reconstruct the house was known as Theodate Pope Riddle, and she was the first licensed architect in New York, and she also was licensed in Connecticut. She was hired to bring back the home to its original restorative kind of layout. She was going to restore the outside, the inside, and also uh, reconstruct the uncle's home. What I really think is fascinating is that this woman, Riddle, Theodate Pape, say that five times fast, Theodate 
Pope Riddle. She almost didn't get the commission if things went a little bit differently in 1915. So Riddle was a very well-educated woman. Her parents saw that she went to a finishing school. Uh, I believe she also took some lessons at Princeton. She wasn't a full-fledged student, but she was there taking lessons, learning about you know different types of humanities and arts as one does. And uh, so it was in 1915 that she boarded the Lusitania as a first-class passenger uh, to go over to Europe. And as she was on that boat, as we all know, that was a very fateful journey. The Lusitania was torpedoed off of the Irish coast by German U-boats. Uh, Europe was already engaged in World War I at this point. There were the lives of 128 Americans on that boat that went down with it. It really kind of pushes Woodrow Wilson into making some type of decision about, are we going to get involved in the war? But I digress. So Riddle is on board with her maid, Emily Robinson, and a friend, Professor Edwin Friend, ironically enough. As the boat is torpedoed, Riddle makes it out to the lifeboats. And as she goes out and looks at those lifeboats as they are going into the the dark and chilly waters, she keeps seeing that the lifeboats are tipping over, whether it's uneven weight distribution or whether it's, you know, pieces of debris hitting them. So she decides that she is going to jump off of the deck into the icy waters below because she'll have a better chance at survival than by getting in one of those lifeboats. She makes it, she's treading water, and then all of a sudden, as she recalls, a man jumps onto her shoulders, pushing her under and knocking her unconscious. She was dragged from the surf by someone else, placed into a pile of bodies that they were trying to identify because she was perceived as dead. And then all of a sudden, uh, another passenger, a woman by the name of Belle Naish, recognized some signs of life in Riddle, and it took her over two hours to be revived, but she survives and comes back to America and then gets this commission in the 19, in four years later to reconstruct Teddy Roosevelt's childhood home. So Theodate worked with Edith, like I said, the wife of Teddy Roosevelt, his widow, and his two sisters, Anna and Corinne, to use documents and memoirs of the home to have the interior restored just right. And while Teddy spent his childhood in this home, there was one place that he would frequent quite often, especially because of its prominent location in the city where Teddy and his younger brother, Elliot, would be able to get a bird's eye view of major events in the city. And that was at the home of his grandfather, Cornelius Van Schack Roosevelt, located at Broadway and 13th and 14th Street. Roosevelt owned, Grandfather Roosevelt owned the entire city block. Today, if you stroll by this location, you'll see that it is occupied by the Emory Roth building. But in April of 1865, this was the place where Teddy and Elliot would actually be seen in a very famous image, dangling out of the window, watching the funeral parade of then-slain President Abraham Lincoln. So it's just kind of this fascinating piece of history that here is a young six-year-old president-to-be-in-waiting watching the body of um, Abraham Lincoln go by. And a fun trivia fact is that Teddy's second wife, Edith Kermit Corot, uh, was also present that day in the same house. She was a family friend of the Roosevelts. By 1873, Teddy Sr. had moved the family up to number six, uh, West 57th Street, just below Central Park and next door uh, to Uncle James. These were big, huge, roomy houses. Um, they would 
where the wealthy would have lived. They were even 25, 30, and even somewhere 50 feet in length, which was crazy by Manhattan standards at that day. They moved to this house after a two-year world tour that the family went on. I never knew this about Teddy Roosevelt. He actually saw the pyramids of Egypt and traveled throughout Europe. Um, So in this house, Teddy would decide that he would go on to Harvard University and he would get involved with boxing, rowing crew, so on and so forth. And uh, it was while he was at Harvard that he pursued his first wife, Alice Hathaway Lee. I think he asked her to marry him like a bunch of times and she kept pushing him off and then finally she gives in. Things are going great. They are looking wonderful in, in young Roosevelt's life. And then he is hit with very tragic news that his father um, was diagnosed with very late stage stomach cancer and was subsequently would, would die very soon short after. Um, it was really after the tragic death of his father that Teddy Roosevelt, he was left with $1.9 million in today's money. And uh, he decided to go into law school at Columbia. He was dangling on the fence with if he wanted to go into like the natural sciences. His father, whose nickname was Greatheart Roosevelt, was a great philanthropist um, and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on some of the museums and institutions that we have in New York today. But Teddy decides against and goes into law school at Columbia. Then in this very house, Um, tragedy strikes again in 1884 when both his wife, Alice, and his mother die on the same day, Valentine's Day, in the home, leaving Roosevelt a widower with a two-day-old daughter, Alice. Um, He actually would never call Alice by her first name. He came up with all sorts of nicknames for her. It was just too painful. He puts an X on that diary, and he leaves to go out to the Dakotas. He leaves young Alice um, in the caretaking of his sister, uh, who uh, Alice and the family nicknamed Bammy. And uh, that is what he does. He goes out to the Dakota Territory, and he tries his hand at cattle ranching. And he epically fails. By 1886, he comes back to New York City. He loses a bid for the mayor. And then he kind of spends the next decade uh, getting himself together. He remarries his childhood friend, Edith. Like I said, she was there with Lincoln's funeral procession. Uh, Those two will go on to have a total of five children, plus Alice, who lived with them always. And uh, Teddy spends the next decade between Oyster Bay and D.C. attempting to write books, battle corruption in politics, and become a crusader for causes in progressive reform. But by 1895, he had accepted an appointment as the police chief commissioner of New York City, which at that time was nicknamed the Island of Vice. And so he moved into his sister Bammy, that was his sister Anna's home, in order to have a Manhattan address. And the place where Roosevelt lived for those two years that he was police chief commissioner was 689 Madison Avenue. 689 Madison was built in 1880. Now, the building was unfortunately demolished in 1955 for 38 East 62nd Street, if you wanted to see where it was. The street would have been dotted with townhouses as it was here that he and his family lived for two years. And uh, it was where all of the wealthy would hang out in New York. As a prominent New Yorker, Roosevelt would often go from 689 Madison over to the Union League Club, which still stands to this day. Uh, And he would often go there just as his father did, since his father was a founding member. Uh, The Union Club is at Park Avenue and 37th Street in the same neighborhood as the J.P. Morgan Library for those following Gilded Age 
fandom. And when Teddy, this is an interesting little aside, when Teddy first applied to this elite club, he was denied because there was rumors that his mother, Martha Bullock, was a Confederate sympathizer. Uh, His parents did get married in Georgia, but I digress. The thing that pulled him out was that Greatheart, Theodore Sr., was a founding member of the Union League. And so they eventually decide that they have to let uh, Teddy in. So Roosevelt used to love to take in dinner at the Union League and then walk the streets of New York City at night trying to figure out exactly how he was going to rid the city of its graft, prostitution, and of course, alcohol. Um, There are numerous reports of how the city had over 40,000 prostitutes Um, servicing its streets nightly. Roosevelt wanted to put a stop to that for sure. Today, the Union Club uh, still, the Union League Club still stands. And um, if you're a member, hook a girl up. Let me get in as a a guest. Um, That's the only way that you're getting into this elite club. They have dinners, they have entertainment, and they have a solid no social media policy. But anyway, So when Roosevelt served as police chief commissioner, his office was at 300 Mulberry Street. Now, and I can attest to this, this is now a standard five-story apartment complex. But from 1862 to 1909, this was the center of law enforcement in New York City. Uh, If you think about it, if you you know five points at all, or or if you go to San Gennaro in Little Italy, you'll know that it's only eight blocks down to Mulberry. You're in the heart of the five points neighborhood between Broadway and the Bowery. And it was here that Roosevelt operated and learned about the rogues gallery. That was a collection of photographs of the city's most notorious criminals. Um, 300 Mulberry was like America's Scotland Yard. And uh, this rogues gallery was kind of like the piece de la resistance to it. Uh, it was here at 300 Mulberry where Roosevelt would meet his friend Jacob Reese. Reese was a noted photographer and author. If you're in a U.S. history course listening to this, you're probably reading or have read or have seen images from How the Other Half Lives. Reese was a photographer of immigrant life, and he highlighted how, you know, just how bad that people that were coming to America had it in those tenements and slums and things like that. But Reese becomes very good friends with Roosevelt. They would often meet at 300 Mulberry, and then they would walk around at nighttime to see exactly what was going on on those streets. If you walk by this now apartment building, I often think of how one of Roosevelt's first orders of business at 300 Mulberry was to fire two incompetent police officers and hire, gasp, a woman at $1,700 a year to become his stenographer and secretary. Roosevelt hires this woman, Minnie G. Kelly, and she made headlines all over the New York presses uh, when she was hired. The paper's word played, of course it will be necessary to alter the uniform. Now, Roosevelt hailed this as a cost-cutting move, but I still think that it's pretty innovative that here we are in the heart of New York City, 300 Mulberry, and there is a woman walking to work as a stenographer going to work for who's going to become president of the United States. He worked from this office in cutting down over the 40,000 prostitutes that were roaming the streets, the illegal casinos, the all-night dance halls, and of course, probably most infamously, ridding the city of illegal liquor on Sundays. And he really does all of this by taking these midnight rambles with Reese, who he would call his prop and comfort. And they would often eat at the Union League Club and then head out into the streets where those people were out on the beat working. 
Teddy loved a good meal, so often so that while he was on the job, he would stop into these restaurants that I'm now going to mention, where you would still be able to have a seat, a drink, and a taste of Roosevelt's New York. So some of the places like Sherry's famous nightclub have since gone by the by, but some of these institutions have stood the test of time. So the first one is Delmonico's. Um, located in Fidei. Delmonico's, interestingly enough, has a new revitalization to it. But for history's sake, it was the first place to allow women and men to eat together in public. And it was reported that Teddy Roosevelt used to dine here quite frequently. And as a boy, he would use the 56 Beaver Street location of one of the original Delmonico's uh, for his dance lessons. Because before it became Delmonico's, it was a dance hall. I just love that. Delmonico's now is known for classic chef creations like Eggs Benedict, Baked Alaska, Lobster Newburgh. Um, Delmonico's was the famous spot where the famed 400 of New York society would come out and make their debuts. Um, and it was really the first fine dining restaurant in the city where they would have steaks, private dining rooms, etc., so on and so forth. So just one of the places that Roosevelt would haunt. The other that Roosevelt would like to stop and get a bite to eat at that you still can too is Keene Steakhouse, uh, which is at 72 West 36th Street. Uh, In 1885, this chop house was opened by proprietor Albert Keene. Uh, Keene was really big in the New York Theater District. And the cool part about Keene Steakhouse is you actually can see a little bit of Teddy Roosevelt still gracing its walls. So Keene's has the largest collection of church warden pipes in the world. And they had a pipe club of which Teddy Roosevelt was a member. So the tradition of church warden pipes began in England. Um, You would bring your smoking pipe with you wherever you went to eat. Because clay pipes would have been so fragile uh, to travel with, the inns would then have a pipe warden who would have registered and stored the pipes for you. And then pipe boys would return the pipes from storage to the correct patron whenever you were ready to go there and have a meal and a smoke. They have over 90,000 names of members of the Pipe Club at Keene's. And Teddy Roosevelt is just one of them. Some others that are pretty infamous are Babe Ruth, Will Rogers, J.P. Morgan, and Buffalo Bill Cody. And one of the last places in the city that you can still take a drink this has got to be a good one, uh, where Roosevelt would have, is the Paris Cafe on 119 South Street. This cafe was established in 1873, and it's one of the surviving oldest establishments in the area. Roosevelt would have dined here whenever he was about to board an ocean liner uh, that was going to set sail to either Europe or South America. And the Paris Cafe underwent this total rejuvenation in the wake of COVID. Uh, They have a new owner, um, but they decided that they were definitely keeping the German Victorian bar and also the original brick walls. They've been restored to their days of glory. Um, Most of the food at the Victorian Cafe is inspired by uh, dishes that Napoleon enjoyed. So you're kind of getting a two for one with your European and American history there. You get some great views of the Brooklyn Bridge in the East River while you're dining. And I always think you can just, you know, dine like a Roosevelt. Um, just Just three spots in the city that if you're going on a Teddy Roosevelt tour, if you want to see where he grew up, where he was police chief commissioner, and then also... And three little spots that you can kind of bar hop from one to the next. Uh, Make sure you dress fancy, though. I don't know if Delmonico's will let you in 
off of your streetwear. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, finally, for you New Jersey locals listening to the podcast, there's one spot in New Jersey. I'm sure there's more than one, but there's one that's a nice drive and a quick getaway uh, where you can see Teddy Roosevelt came not once but twice. And that is the Ocean Grove Auditorium. That's right. Um, Roosevelt came here once in 1899 and then once in 1905. And he spoke to teachers of the NEA one time, which I think is just pretty cool. And then uh, he was also regaled with a parade on Ocean Pathway because he was seen as the man of muscular Christianity, which I just love tying back into Brush Daddy Bradley from a couple episodes ago. Ocean Grove had this uh, club. How they got Roosevelt here was they had a club called the Young Rough Riders Club. And it was a military training club for young gents, ages eight and up, that wanted to be just like Teddy Roosevelt on a rough riding stallion heading off into the fray. Many of the young men that were a part of that rough riding club uh, would go on to fight in World War I. But I just think it's pretty cool that even in New Jersey, Teddy Roosevelt came back here twice. Um once pre-president and then once while he was in office to kind of talk to our teachers and also to give a good bully to those young men in their pre-war military training as, as little kids. Well, that's it for me on this edition of Heirloom Historical. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Leslie Sharon Beck. Stay tuned as next month we have some pretty interesting and intriguing African-American histories all throughout the country, places I've been, spots here in Jersey that you can go check out and visit. And we thank you for listening and stay tuned. Bully. Bully.